Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Fashion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today. I'm here with my sister and co-founder of Share Our Strength, Debbie Shore. Debbie, thanks for being with us. Always happy to be here. It's great to have you in the studio. And Lindsay Seegers here in the studio also, who's the uh, Nutrition Program Director at MANA in Montgomery County. Is that the right title? Close? Close. Program Manager of Nutrition Education at Mana Food Center. Oh, mine, was, mine was shorter. I think it was the same. <laughs> Manager and director, though, are two different things, you know. <laughs> True. Um, we're glad you're here. And glad special here. guest from uh, New York, Connecticut area, Michelle Nishan, three-time James Beard Award winner, uh, restaurateur who we were just talking about, had a restaurant called The Dressing Room with former uh, the late Paul Newman, the great actor. Uh, what a thrill that must have been, and I'm sure you've talked about that many times. And oh, yes. most recently, uh, founder of Wholesome Wave, an organization that my sister Debbie is actually on the board of. So proud. New board does, member. Does amazing work. So we're going to want to hear about that, about your background, about Lindsay's. But one of the things I wanted to start with is something that I was reading uh, as we were preparing for this, which is that diet-related death and illnesses are now the number one leading cause, diet-related issues, I should say, are the number one leading cause of death and illness, replacing smoking, which we all grew up thinking was you know, the worst thing in the world. But so many of these issues of health are related to diet now, and that's something that you're both uh, playing an integral role on. And I guess I want to hear how you got there, and I want to start with you, Lindsay, since you're sitting right here uh, across from me. But uh, you've had an impact on the lives of many families in Montgomery County in particular, which is where I once lived. Uh, by helping them navigate these issues that are so crucial, to, not just mm-hmm. to their to their health, but to their uh, their income and their livelihood. Uh, tell us how you got into this work and, and what it's led to for you. Well, um, it sounds like I'm starting at the very beginning, which I am to say that I was born <laughs> here in Washington, D.C., and um, adopted at birth. And um, remember going into D.C. frequently with one of my earliest memories being um, men and women sleeping on the sidewalk. And... As a child, um, you're told, look away. And when you tell a kid to do not to do something, of course, the first thing they're gonna do is do it. And it just did not sit right with me. The injustice and unfairness of that did not sit right with me. And I knew since I was a kid, five, (laughs) I knew that um, this was work I wanted to be in. This was, here's a situation that was not right. And um, being adopted and not having a backstory at that point in my life, I very much felt like that could be my story, right? It could have been I got lucky in this mm-hmm. in this way, and it could have as easily been my story. And so there's always been this strong conviction for me that I am not more worthy of having a meal in front of me or a roof over my head. And so that empathy driving me, really that conviction since childhood, um, led me to pursue social work in college and... Um, graduated in the recession when there weren't a lot of jobs. So discovering that time while I was working in um, elementary special ed that I had a knack for cooking and um, pursued my graduate certificate in nutrition um, as part of George Mason's Global Community Health Program. And with that, started going around to the food banks and food pantries in the area and saying, tell me about your work. What are you facing? What does it look like? What are you doing? And I found that most in the area were giving out tuna and mac and cheese and and Oreos and just grateful to be getting those donations and have food to give out. Um, But when I visited Mana Food Center and did an informational interview there, I saw this whole priority on nutrition and sorting the donations by nutrient density. And I knew it was a place I wanted to be. And I was really grateful a year later when they called me and said, do you want to come interview for a job? So that's how I got to man about four years ago. You've completely shot down one of our main theories on, oh, this, no. on this podcast, which is that <laughs> most careers do not go in a straight line. But yours sounds like from the time you were five, you knew exactly what you wanted to do and you you got there. And one of the things we always talk and joke about in the culinary community, in particular, chefs tend to have you know very zigzag uh, paths to where they are. But uh, uh, Michelle, how about um, chefs and careers going in a straight line? Did yours? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, kind of, um, kind of, you know, it's interesting. I think, yeah, I share similarity with Lindsay where, you know, I, 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 I've been moved by food my entire life. My, um, my mother, uh, is the daughter of, um, of a dirt farmer from Southeastern Missouri. And, um, she and my father separately had moved up 
to Chicago after World War II and that kind of like last conventional takeover of farmland where it really wasn't viable to be on the land anymore. And we really were marketing to get folks to leave the farm and to populate this next industrial expansion. So they met up there, but my grandfather held on to his farm as best he could, even though it wasn't viable for the kids to be engaged anymore. But they used to send us down every summer. Our summer was spent working what was left of that farm in Morley, Missouri, and uh, five or six weeks of, you know, slopping hogs and feeding goats and, you know, cleaning chicken sheds and uh, working out in the melon and the root crop patches in the sweet corn patch. And uh, food fascinated me. Every one of my aunts and uncles, my mom was one of 13. They all were expert cooks. Uh, they sent their their children down because my grandfather could no longer afford farm workers. And then in payment, uh, that last week, all the aunts and uncles and my mom and dad would come down and we'd can and pickle and cure. And everybody got to go home with a U-Haul trailer full of food. So, you know, I grew up knowing what really good food was, even though my dad was a tool salesman and my mom was a torch singer in a nightclub and a cocktail waitress. Um, you know, so we had our, our brushes with hard times on and off and, uh, and, and that, and I, you know, remember my mom and my dad struggling to make ends meet, but we always had good food on the table because whatever we didn't grow in our backyard, uh, which my mom didn't display in Illinois, she was backyard gardening, you know, we brought tons of stuff up from the farm, and our food stamps went for things like milk and meat, but we never had to worry about, you know, vegetables and, you know, pickles and fermented things and all that good jazz. So I was in love with food. Um, so, what, you know, when I became a chef, I had a, a short blip where I was a professional musician, and that was not paying well, and I was losing weight. So my mom said, dummy, you can cook, get a job in a restaurant, at least you'll eat. And <laughs> and the re the rest is history. Um, what, you know, kind of, for, what kind of job did you get in the restaurant? Well, I started as a breakfast cook at a truck stop on the Illinois-Wisconsin border, Um but I moved pretty rapidly um, because they're, you know, I, I I got the job because they they had a pretty a mass walkout. Uh, the owner of the truck stop and his his nephew was up from Chicago who was working in some really great restaurants uh, to help out. And this kid watched me work and he said, "Wow, you have skills. You really know what you're doing. Um, you should come down and work with me in some of the restaurants I'm working at." Um, and uh, they, they'd love you, and it's $2 more an hour. And uh, that's kind of how I made it through my culinary career. They loved the skills that I had, even though I didn't know what to call stuff. Uh, I didn't know what culinary terms were, but I, sure, I could butcher a leg of veal faster than the chef could uh, in cleaner. So eventually I was offered a job of sous chef, and I asked what that was, and they said it's $5 more an hour. So I said, deal, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, so that eventually led to me working in some really great restaurants, and I ended up with Drew Neeporent in New York City, um, the, the restaurateur yep. who's famous for the Nobu restaurants yep. and Tribeca Grill and places like that. And uh, um, I, I also, it was right around that time that I went to New York um, that my son Chris was diagnosed with diabetes. So he's my third child, you know, uh, one of three boys, but we have five all day. It wasn't until Chris was diagnosed that I made the connection between food and human health. And how old was Chris at the time? He was five. Five. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I ended up working with Drew because Drew had read about my frustrations of you know, um, we had we had learned as a family what to do to give Chris his best shot at a long-term outcome by changing our food strategy at home. But what I was cooking for my customers in the restaurant wasn't reconciling with what I was feeding my family, and that couldn't stand. Uh, so Drew invited me to co-create a restaurant concept with him back in 1997 called Heartbeat in the first W Hotel that ever opened. So it was a, a restaurant of well-being local, organic, sustainable, but no processed food of any kind. And it was uh, it was pretty groundbreaking and controversial. Uh, you know, the New York Times and the Observer gave us really great reviews. The Star, uh, the, the Post completely panned us. There were food critics who refused to eat in the restaurant because we didn't have butter or cream. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty wild. But that's how I kind of got my start uh, of cooking for well-being um, 
to address what I had experienced with Chris and his his diet treatable disease. Uh, and then I learned about type 2. Type 2 diabetes is actually a diet-related, diet-preventable, diet-treatable form of diabetes, uh, usually as a result of lifestyle. Now, type 2 diabetes used to be known as age onset, but because of diet disparities in children, we have record numbers of children under 14 years old now that have type 2 diabetes, which is something that used to not happen until you crossed your 40-year-old mark. And the more I dove into it and I thought, wow, we could really change the world through food here, I learned that the majority of the people that struggled with that condition or the pre-diabetes lived at income levels so low that they couldn't even afford the, afford the basic ingredients to help them prevent the disease in the first place. Um, and to your point uh, about diet-related disease being the number one killer, it's also one of the biggest cost drivers um, when we look at our national economy um, through the lens of, of you know, our debt. Um, when we look at the $19 trillion debt, we spend about $1.4 trillion a year on diet-related disease, uh, these things that are now killing us at a higher rate than smoking. So, you know, it, it didn't take me long to figure out um, the fact that I wasn't going to be able to reach underserved consumers running a restaurant that could charge 30 to $40 for an entree. So that that's the energy that led to founding Wholesome Way. Oh, so well, is that is that why you left the restaurant industry? Because when this revelation came to you, you realized that you couldn't serve the number of people that you, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that, but that makes yeah, perfect well, sense that that well, led it was, to Wholesome Way. Yeah, it led me to Wholesome Way, but I was doing both for a while because I hadn't figured out what what helping people struggling with poverty would look like. I, w one thing I did know is the more I studied it and I really understood how much an underserved family has to spend on dinner for a family of four after their SNAP benefits or food stamps run out in the middle of the month, it's two bucks, uh, that there's no business plan for that. And I had to do something else. So I stayed in the restaurant business for a while. Even when I found a dressing room with Paul Newman, the late actor, who was in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in a variety of films. You know, my dream was that the restaurant would maybe help support approaches that could help me reach underserved consumers somehow, help them get good food. So so dressing uh, Wholesome Wave was actually founded while I was chef owner of Dressing Room with okay. Paul. Um, and, and eventually it got to the point where, you know, um, just the work at Wholesome Wave is so busy and there's so much need. Yeah. And and at this time, you know, in our society, there's so much opportunity. I, just, I couldn't do both. So I had yep. to make the choice. It was an easy choice to make, though. Well, let, let me ask you, before we get into what Wholesome Wave is, um, sitting here with Lindsay and listening to you talk about your five-year-old son, Chris, and his needs, and I'm thinking, Lindsay, you must see a lot of kids and families like Chris. It might not be diabetes, but talk about who MANA serves and what what types of uh, issues arise. And if you can give us any examples or tell stories, you don't have to use their names, of uh, families you've worked with, that would be, I think, really significant. Sure. So um, MANA serves about 3,600 families a month um, through supplemental. And this is in Montgomery County, Maryland. In Montgomery County, okay. Maryland. So we're a community-based food organization um, that serves families in Montgomery County through um, food distribution, education, advocacy. And we're serving children through our Smart Sacks program. So that's a weekend backpack program um, serving, I think it's about 2,800 kids each Friday. And Who get backpacks of food to take home for the weekend. That's right. So these are it's public a, school students? Or these are public Mexico. school students. Yeah. And um, what we've noticed, because these programs are pretty common across the country, and as I was mentioning before, what, what's typically given out, Easy Mac and um, candy bars was that's a really popular to send kids home with something that they can be opening themselves and preparing themselves. But in focus groups with the families, we found that the kids were taking that Easy Mac home and show, and sharing it with all their siblings. Mm -hmm. So we changed the menu so that now they're still taking home only about six or seven pounds of food, but it's family food. So it's a pound of brown rice and a pound of dried beans. And there's, um, you know, a cereal bar in there, a granola bar. And some things that we're hearing from those kids are um, not just now having 
food to get them through that weekend to bridge that gap when they're not getting school breakfast and school lunch over the weekend, but also even that when their friends come over, that they have a granola bar, have a snack to share with their friends and how much that means to them. Um, so what I'm seeing when I'm doing grocery store tours, diabetes prevention workshops, I'm doing this in the schools with the parents, um, primarily with a program called Linkages to Learning, which is helping parents who are mostly recent immigrants um, get connected to further learning opportunities and connecting them to help their kids succeed in school. And I'm finding that what the parents want so much is to feed their children well, and they want the best of their kids. They want that very, very much. But one mom I met recently who's come to my grocery store tour, she's been to all my nutrition workshops, um, she's a survivor of domestic violence. And when she immigrated here about 10 years ago, she had the freedom to divorce her husband for her own safety, but it struggled because of her literacy and still struggling to learn English with being able to secure a job. Um, so she's taking odd jobs, babysitting and nannying and cleaning and, and doing what she can for neighbors and for friends to make money, but really to be able to afford adequate and enough wholesome staple foods, um, that's, that's really the challenge. So most people think of Montgomery County as a very well-off county. Um, I've lived there for about 20 years, and I know that parts of it are well-off, Chevy Chase and Potomac and others, but parts of it are, are really struggling. What what should we understand about these families? What's the the deal with them? Are, are uh, mom and dad not working? Are they immigrant families who can't get jobs? Why why do we have twenty eight hundred kids? Um, Montgomery County is one of it's it's in the top twelve wealthiest counties in the country, and yet in Montgomery County, one out of every three children qualifies for free and reduced meals. Um, when we're looking at who we're serving at Mana, it's really across the board demographics. Um, we certainly have a large Hispanic population. However, we have 89 spoken languages in Montgomery County. It's an incredibly diverse county. How can that be? Um, 89 languages. <laughs> there are 89 languages. Yeah, this is through the census. Um, wow. So um, we have uh, many people coming here from Cameroon. So French is becoming really popular in the East County. We have a large Asian population. Um, so it really is, we have a lot of seniors. We have um, a lot of recent immigrants. The people that I'm meeting in line at MANA, I mean, right outside of my desk are people coming to MANA to get monthly food from noon to three each day. So I'm talking with these families and people that I'm meeting, um, many stories that I've heard firsthand are people who have lost their job due to um, a medical concern. Many people who have come on the grocery store tours have master's degrees, have a four-year college degree. I have to ask you on the yeah. shopping tours, mm -hmm. um, before we turn back to Michelle, you know, we always talk about how they're, they're you know, a, a terrific way to learn about, you know, um, labeling and uh, unit pricing and, and nutrition. But because it's one tour, we're always wondering how deeply that really, uh, you know, lands on folks and whether the outcomes um, that, you know, we're seeing are as good as they can be with one visit. Can you speak to a little bit uh, about that a little bit and how you feel that people are really learning and taking away the important lessons of, of these kind of tours. And say a little bit about what the tours are like, how many folks are on them, where you go, um, mm -hmm. what you talk to them about, that type of thing. So um, what we do is families meet me at the grocery store. So we were specifically looking at five grocery stores um, just as, as a doable number in, in key areas in Montgomery County that where we had the highest number of people receiving food at our distribution sites around the county. So participants come out to the store, find out through their food box that they get at MANA about locations and times and where those store tours are happening. They learn they get a $10 gift card to come spend a free hour in nutrition class. And um, of course, the new word nutrition throws people off because they think that they're coming for an hour to hear that everything they're doing is wrong. And um, being a social worker by training, um, I like it to make it very much a positive spin and that camaraderie over, we love to eat. I love to eat. Let's be excited about eating and looking forward to our meals. Okay, how do we do that on a budget? So we're looking at unit pricing. We're looking at how to buy in season. Um, we're looking at buying in bulk. We're looking at what are the most important things on nutrition, nutrition fact label. And I find that a lot of the um, moms, especially a lot of Hispanic mothers who come on my tours, um, have low literacy levels. 
So being able to focus on the three S's, just looking for saturated fat, sodium, and sugar, helps a great deal because even if you can't read those words very well, but you understand you're looking for the letter S and you're looking for a number that's closer to zero, it's a very simple way to understand, okay, this is an item, this oatmeal versus the plain oatmeal. Here's something that's clearly healthier for my family. Oh, and the plain oatmeal is actually a lot more affordable. Just this past summer, we called 152 people. Well, those are that many people that picked up. 152 people picked up our call that had been on my grocery store tour over the last three, four years. And we asked them, what is the impact of this tour? And while we can't say this is exactly because of the store tour, people's answers were amazing. The kinds of responses we got, I was just hoping they were going to say, I remember how to read nutrition right, fact label. Right. Or I remember something about serving size. But rather... I started the garden with my kids in the window cell. Right. I lost 80 pounds. My numbers are better. My sugar's down. It's I a have real behavior change, it real sounds like. Real behavior change. Yeah. Well, um, as you're talking about families wanting to do the right things for their kids, that seems to me, Michelle, to be one of the things that Wholesome Wave is built on, that conviction that if you can make healthy food accessible, families will make the right choices. Um, Tell us a little bit more about Wholesome Wave. I feel like I hear the name Wholesome Wave at least once a day, and once <laughs> and once every other day somebody tells me they were just with Michelle Nishan. You're somehow you're all over the country, whether it's New York or Connecticut or or California or Denver. Um, it just seems the the growth has been explosive because of the power of the idea behind it, your idea. Tell us how Wholesome Wave got started and and what it's doing today. I know you're in 48 states, hundreds and hundreds of farmers markets and grocery stores. When when I realized that what I was doing at Heartbeat would never, ever be enough um, when it came to the context of kind of the, the whole notion of good food for all. Um, you know, I started, you know, doing a variety of hobby work with nonprofit food justice organizations, trying to really get to the bottom of what what the real barrier was and what the real reasons were. Everything kind of pointed to policy. But functionally on the ground, um, you know, if you're struggling to put food on the table tonight for dinner uh, with two dollars for four people, you you don't you don't give a damn about policy. <laughs> you you, you want to get food on the table. Um, so I, I I looked at what the barriers were for those that were actually struggling, and you know there were a lot of assumptions that it was lack of education. Um, lack of just pure access, geographic access, um, the whole food desert notion. But I, you know, one of the hobby projects I visited was a farmer's market in in, um, in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, uh, in a Hmong Cambodian neighborhood uh, where there were Hmong in Somali and Gus Schumacher, who's our founding board chair, um, had founded a... Um, this approach in Western Massachusetts, helping immigrant and refugee farmers from Cambodia, from Somalia, from a variety of other places, how to get them on farmland really cheap so that they could grow the produce of their heritage and at least feed themselves. And then his next iteration was, what if we open farmers markets in neighborhoods where there are Hmong and Somali, but they don't have access to land? These guys can actually make a little bit of money. So I went to one of these markets with Gus and watched a a a a, a black woman and a Puerto Rican man doing the weirdest sign language in the world with a Hmong farmer trying to, to figure out what to do with fuzzy melon because it's like the size of your head. <laughs> um, and it, it looks like a giant fat cross between a cucumber and a watermelon, but it's really hairy. It's fuzzy, right? So, and, and, and they, them wanting to know what to do with it because it was big and it was a dollar. And I, I watched all of the stereotypes, all of the assumptions about lack of education, lack of demand, lack of concern, you know, the geographic access, because here were folks from two completely different cultural neighborhoods than the area of the town where the Mongs and, and the Somalis were uh, trying to figure out what to do with this weird looking thing because they could afford it. So it was that was my aha moment that I think maybe the biggest barrier is lack of affordability. So, um, and, and lo and behold, over time, what we really discovered with Wholesome Wave by raising private money to create a two-for-one fruit and vegetable sale, basically what we, we said was, um, you know, we're raising private money. If you come to 
this farmer's market because at the in the early phases we weren't allowed to operate incentives at grocery stores um it, which which we can talk about later if you want but we went into the farmer's market area and basically could say to the snap population spend your snap on anything you want but if you come over here and buy fruits and vegetables we'll double your money and and it worked it it stunned us so if you're going to um, spend fifty dollars on fruits and vegetables you'll you'll give them another fifty to spend on fruits and vegetables yeah, and not really none of the incentive programs have ever had to go that high. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen incentive programs where it's $5 a day at the market, $10, $20. But what we found is, you know, you come and you 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 spend 20, we we give you 40. Uh, but we we do it in the form of doubling because farmers are already struggling, so we didn't want to put them in a position where they're giving the discount. So what was interesting is not only did we see SNAPs consumers of a variety of ethnicities flooding the markets to take advantage of the incentives, we saw farmers doing crazy business, buying more equipment, putting more land in production, diversifying their crop plantings as a result of encountering this new market demand. So we were able to prove statistically um, you know, uh, 1,600 farmers in one survey, and then a couple of years later, 3,600 farmers, um, that these farmers were able to do all these things as a result of being exposed to this business. Uh, but when we, t- you know, did our consumer at- attitude surveys, what are the things that you like most about this? What are the most important reasons to you and your family for participating in the program? And it was quality of produce, selection of produce, and, you know, things like that. And the convenience were, you know, the, we're, we're actually scoring low on the surveys. We, we knew we were onto something. And, and it's eventually that energy and those outcomes that led to the success of the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentive Program, making it into the 2014 Farm Bill. And that's, you know, $100 million over five years in federal funds to double SNAP when spent on fruits and vegetables. So, you know, just it, it's, it, it was odd to see such a simple idea catch on so very rapidly. But I think what it tells, tells us is that however complicated the root causes are, that something as simplistic as providing affordability through incentives can be so powerful. It's just, it's mind boggling. So I, I, I never dreamed that it would be that good of an idea. It seemed pretty simple to me that the type of idea where people could say, well, now, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> you know, um, you know, I just I, I think there's a lot of power in it. So we're we're gratified to to see it um, enjoy such great success so broadly in so many places. Uh, could you both say a word about what the potential consequences would be if the SNAP program gets cut uh, for the population that you serve? There's a lot of talk in Washington about um, either putting restrictions on SNAP. Uh, there's lots of uh, controversy and commentary about whether there are able-bodied people on SNAP who should be required to work, uh, which actually is an existing requirement, but it's been, was waived during parts of the the recession. Um, what are the risks that we face if SNAP uh, is not in the form that we know it today, Lindsay? Well, simply that the food budget is often the only place in a family's budget where you can actually have any control. You can't control your rent or your other bills, your medical bills. And so food is where people are going to cut when things get really tight. And so for a family who's eligible for SNAP, um, they're most likely already facing other financial barriers. And so already it's quite low the amount you're getting, but like with the grocery store tours, when you're learning how to take $25, $40, and stretch it to feed a family of four, that is food you now have on the table you didn't otherwise. So even just that little bit makes a huge difference. You know, the interesting thing to me, um, you know, Billy, is just the misunderstanding of how many people that rely on SNAP are actually working, (laughs) um, able-bodied or not, you know, the number of folks on SNAP that actually are working, you know, two part-time jobs or even three part-time jobs to equal a full-time job equivalent at a minimum wage, often working more than 40 hours a week but getting no overtime because you're working multiple jobs. Uh, so, So your income value is so low. 
Um, one of the things that we didn't expect from SNAP consumers that were benefiting our programs were, were um, you know, comments like, wow, I can actually keep my electricity on this summer. Um, you know, what, what time of year is it okay for me to not have an electric bill? The, these families are very literate at having their utilities turned off, being strategic about when they're turned off, what they have to do to get them turned back on. It's just, that's what they're going, what the, what these families are going through. Um, you know, but the other part of your question that I think is in, interesting is, you know, it's not just these families. When you look at the economic impact of pulling those grocery sales um, out of that economic sector, there's an impact there. Um, when you look at SNAP, uh, I think when it was at its height right after the recession, I think that year it was around $80 billion. Uh, I think USDA had completed a recent study that showed that a SNAP, SNAP consumer spends around 91 cents of their own money. Quinnipiac says 51 cents of their own money. But either way you cut it, it's over a $100 billion retail food marketplace. And that money pays the cashier, you know, the the bagger, the truck driver keeps the lights turned on. Um, when when you look at a hundred billions a uh, hundred billion dollars a year in retail food, that's that's almost half of Walmart's global annual grocery sales. It it, it it's a big number. Um, so there's an impact beyond just the families themselves. And then you have to wonder how many people are going to get laid off or lose their jobs because of that drop in the retail food sector that are going to end up needing food assistance, but now they can't get it. So it's just it's just bizarre way of thinking um, when you look at the overall impact of the program. You know, when when unemployed rolls are up, SNAP budget goes up. When the economy is doing really well, the SNAP budget goes way down. Um, it's got one of the lowest fraud rates of any federal program, um, and and um, you know it, it's just one of the last things that a family should have to struggle with when they're already struggling with um, the psychological warfare of being on really hard financial times is whether or not they can even feed their family. Um, so it just it just to me it's just wrongheaded. Um, to think that the program can be cut um, in the ways that a lot of people are talking about. It would really be one of those things that, that, that hurts people. And what I'd love to do is talk about how, you know, looking at SNAP and, and augmenting SNAP or, you know, actually looking at other places than the farm bill to provide support for families struggling with poverty to make healthier food choices. You know, food is so much of a less expensive investment than things like dialysis, right. organ replacement, stints. I mean, dialysis, $100,000 a year, uh, which is a permanent thing. Once you're on dialysis, your kidneys have failed. You're, you're on it for the five to seven years that you're going to live, and then that's it. But that's expensive. For $100,000 a year, you can increase the fruit and vegetable consumption of three people, three servings a day. Every day of the year, and Michelle, uh, it's on, crazy. You know, you're talking about um, kidney dialysis. I'm wondering, so is is food related disease the cause of kidney failure? Are there other? I mean, is is that the one thing that could really uh, either prevent or or cure? That? It's one of the lead one of the leading. leading causes. Yeah, if you look at um, dialysis, around 44 percent of all dialysis patients are on dialysis because of type two diabetes. Yeah, so I feel like, you know, there's this whole, um, and I've, I've said this before, you know, um, this whole public campaign that is just missing around this fact of diet-related disease and mm -hmm. how food can be a preventive and, and cure, um, you know, element to it. And I just feel like it's such a hidden, you know, it's still such a secret out there. I wish there was, you know, a, a, a real public campaign that, that people were aware of this because I feel like if they were, um, there, we would still have the issue of people that wouldn't necessarily have affordability or have access, but at least we would be reaching people around these really very basic, simple facts about your health that I think is just really missing out there. You know, it's there in little little bits and pieces, but it's not there in really big ways. Um, hey, Michelle, I was going to ask you, hmm. um, maybe as a follow-up to that, um, you know, as you know, chefs are the cornerstone 
uh, of our work at Share Our Strength with the No Canary Campaign. And you've been so successful at bringing chefs in to address other issues through the Chef Network, uh, the Chef Action Network, I think it's called. And I, right, I would right. love for you to say a, a few words about that as well. Oh, sure, sure. So um, uh, there's a gentleman that lives by you guys. His name is Eric Kessler. He's the founder of Arabella Advisors. He's been on uh, our show. Yeah, he's, yes. he's a great guy. Yep. And uh, he joined the Board of Trustees at the James Beard Foundation uh, the same year that I was preparing to to come off. And he had reached out to me before he became a board member um, because he had this idea um, that he had done in, in kind of the musician world. Um, Eric, Eric and Arabella Advisor advise um, a lot of high-level philanthropy um, and lots of clients. And a lot of those clients that they advise on how to have most impact with their philanthropy are, are musicians. So he had noticed in the musician community there's this real energy where the musicians wanted to really connect more deeply with cause so that they knew that if they were using their social networks or even using their money to invest or starting a foundation, that that they were really spending their time, their talent, and their treasure on things that really mattered to them. So he started these boot camps, very intimate, getting a handful of musicians together, helping them find and connect with their inner advocacy, and then really teaching them the classic advocacy tools which translate across causes to really help them understand how they can make a difference and plug into their networks in a way that could make some meaningful change and had some success with it. So he reached out to me and said, you know, I've been thinking maybe this works with chefs and a lot of people I'm talking to aren't sure, but everybody told me that I should call you and ask you what you thought, (laughs) which helps me to question his judgment if he's reaching out to me in the first place. (laughs) Anyway, um, so I did, um, we did have the conversation. I thought it was a great idea. So he, he started, um, we started piloting the chef boot camps for policy and change. And we reached out to the James Beard Foundation when I was on the board and said, hey, we think this is a great, a great partnership for Beard um, you guys could be like the facilitator, you know, help us with the venues and, you know, we could use the James Beard website to do the survey and sign people up. We started doing these boot camps where we'd get about a dozen to 15 together at a time um, to help them connect with their inner advocate and then turn them onto the tools and, and the techniques that could help them. When we, when we bring these chefs together and we help them connect with their inner advocate, um, now you can advocate by determining who your audience is, who your allies are, um, you know, who your adversaries might be uh, when you're looking to advocate what your message should be and what are the best channels to get that out. How do you leverage your own personal network that's, you know, following your Twitter feed and your Instagram because they're looking for you know, that next judgment on top chef or the latest recipe tip or whatever it is that you're putting out there, those same folks are at your disposal and and available to you. So it's really understanding how to take a look at your own assets as, as a chef, as an entrepreneur, as a celebrity, a business owner, a taxpayer, an influencer of voting constituents. Um, that's what we mean, um, you know, when we when we say that there are tools that can be leveraged for advocacy um, that everybody al- already knows um, they have these assets. They just haven't really looked at it through that lens of, wow, these folks can be audience, can be allies, can be supporters, whatever it might be. Um, so so it's uh, it's interesting what happens when you see the light switch of awareness get turned on to someone who's already really, really smart and has a ton of work ethic, like a chef. <laughs> and once they uh, understand um, how these tools can be deployed, they take them home and you see them start city food policy councils, you know, or awareness drives or lend themselves to organizations that are already doing great work but had been lacking that extra special oomph that they needed to actually make it to the next level of efficacy. So really, really powerful um, uh, the impact that these two and a half days can have on 15 souls. 
I, I would say one, one of my favorite things is how um, the chef community actually made a big impact. So um, everybody might be aware of, of the work of, you know, Pew Charitable Trust, Johns Hopkins University Center for St- Sustainable Living, um, in trying to raise awareness and doing a campaign around the use of animal antibiotics um, in factory farm animals and how dangerous that is potentially to human health because it creates antibiotic resistance. And um, when when we do the boot camp, we usually have a policy presenter come and do a case study. So Pew came to talk about how successful they had been in raising awareness and that they actually were particularly psyched about how they got 40 chefs engaged to sign on to a letter to encourage, you know, lawmakers and and agencies to actually draft the legislation because the laws had passed um, during the Obama administration, but nobody was doing any work on the rules and regs. And laws can die on the vine if the rules and regulations aren't written to actually activate. So they came and they presented, um, and the 15 chefs started tweeting and Instagramming. And by the end of, of the two days, we had already had something like 40 million impressions. <laughs> and within the next week, because of the chefs saying, oh, you need to sign on to this letter, not only did all 15 chefs sign on, they ended up with close to 500 more chefs signing on to the letter. Um, they offered to do a Hill Day. Um, dozens of chefs descended on the Hill. And within a few months of the boot camp, rules and regulations started getting written for um, the, an- the use of animal antibiotics um, in factory farm settings. So it was really how 15 chefs could activate an entire community of professionals in a way that could get the attention and the media attention and put the pressure on to actually get folks in Washington to say, hey, not only is this not going away, this is becoming a front and center issue, and we better stop dragging our heels on these rules and regs. So it can happen that fast. Um, you know, it can really happen that fast. So that, that's the story I like to share because it was, that was our first boot camp. And, and boy, do, do we have a tiger by the tail. Uh, I think we've had, it's been about three and a half years now. We've had about 150 chefs go through the boot camp. We have a waiting list of close to 800. And when these chefs come to the boot camp, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's child nutrition, whether it's animal antibiotics and growth hormones and, and with farm animals, whether it's issues of hunger, when these chefs uh, encounter this boot camp and really understand um, what the tools are to f- effectively advocate, they, they go back and set their towns on fire. It's pretty amazing, um, you know, to see the energy there. So that, that's what the Chefs Action Network is all about. And, you know, our next phase is really starting to plug these folks meaningfully into partnerships with other organizations and, to and see if we can't scale real change. I was going to just ask, do you have 800 on a waiting list because you don't have enough kind of resources to service them all or is there other, yeah. some other timing issues? Well, it's, it's you know, the, the part of the resources, the, the boot camps work most effectively in small groups, so 15 people yeah. at a time. Gotcha. So we do, we do three events a year and it's 45 people. Um, but, but what it shows is how many young professionals are in the culinary business at this kind of high level of execution that are just practically desperate to lend their life to something outside the four walls of their kitchen. And I just think that's good news for everybody because it, it tells you that what you're seeing in the millennial marketplace, this demand for products that align with with the millennials' personal values, there there's there's a, everybody you know all the corporate horniness to attract the millennial customer, you know there we have a whole group of folks that are coming up to future leadership roles that in that en mass are making decisions based on a whole different set of values yeah. than we've seen from the consumer base in the past. So I think we're coming into a very very positive time despite all the people we see running around with their hair on fire right now. Michelle, when you talked about good news for everybody uh, using that phrase, I felt like you were taking the words right out of my mouth because one of the things I've been thinking (laughs) about as I've been listening to the conversation is there's so much bad news 
in the country right now, whether it's uh, what's happened in Charlottesville uh, just a few days ago uh, mm-hmm. and this this just, you know, terrible divisiveness that exists, whether it's the fear of what's going to happen with North Korea, uh, whether it's just the dysfunction in our government, yet both you and Lindsay are involved in uh, so many things that work, so many things that make a difference mm-hmm. in people's lives. What is the barrier to getting what both of you are doing to a, to a, a larger scale, to reach more people? Th- these are not partisan issues. Does I, I want to hear from each of you, Lindsay uh, and Michelle. Do politics get in the way? Does money get in the way? There, there is such a good news story here. You, you make this problem uh, of, of diet-related issues as they affect our health, you make it sound so solvable, so so doable. Uh, why, why, aren't, why aren't we reaching more people with this really critical solution? That's my favorite word is doable. Um, because I think that one of the issues is that what's put out there is that nutrition still has this elite you know, connotation and that healthy eating is something for the rich and um, what I so often get when I go to classes is, oh, well, I like to eat, so it's nice whatever you have to say, but I, I really like eating. Don't take that joy away from me. Mm. Um, so it's a marketing challenge in <laughs> no, a way. There is that, but there's so many mixed messages around um, nutrition, what's good and what's not, and people feel like they need. It's not clear to the average American, to most people, what do I need? Is it low sodium? Is a certain number? Just tell me how many calories can I have? People want this very concrete black and white answer of what is healthy eating. And I think if we had a clearer message of drink more water, move more, eat more vegetables, and even with diabetes prevention, I've gone to observe um, diabetes classes offered free in the community by local churches, by local health organizations. And what I see is the people who are there almost in tears with frustration, figuring out they have to do a lot of kinds of multiplication to suddenly figure out how their how their health is supposed to get under control where it's even simpler than that even mm-hmm. just looking and getting vegetables there increasing food access is a big piece of that but i think that if we could really refine our message of wellness and healthy eating to something that is so much more simple it's why i've created my own curriculum to kind of um, bounce off of the Cooking Matters store tours. So I'm following up on those same notions of, okay, how do we just get two more vegetables? How do we just get the plate more colorful? If we really simplified the message instead of making healthy eating seem so gourmet and so out of reach. Lindsay, where do we find your curriculum? I have written it all based on it, it um, based on the needs of our community. I have a brand new class about marketing deceptions. So in Montgomery County, you can so come observe. Manna. Yeah, so okay. through Manny, you can come observe my classes. But um, yeah, it's not published anywhere. I've, I've created it based on exactly the kinds of concerns and complaints and um, questions that I hear from the community. Yeah. Um, Michelle, in addition to the uh, the kind of messaging that Lindsay's talking about. You had talked about the centrality of policy. Uh, are there good guys and bad guys around these issues? Is policy getting in the way of it? Uh, people often say to me, you know, who would be against feeding a hungry child? And, uh, you know, the truth is probably not that many people are against it, but there's a lot of folks uh, who don't seem to be in favor of doing all the things you need to do to prevent a child or a family from mm. experiencing hunger in the first place. What's your take on kind of the politics of this? We had um, our success um, in getting the bipartisan support for Finney in the last farm bill really relied on Finney being the food insecurity nutrition incentive program. That's the hundred million dollars that yeah double snap double snap Uh, yeah and we're we're also doing fruit and vegetable prescription programs that are kind of designed to show what happens when you when you spend $100,000 on increasing fruit and vegetable consumption for 250 people instead of waiting until they have kidney failure to pay for their dialysis for one person. Um, you know, so it's just, when, when we look at that context, it's like $100,000 when you take all of the risk factor reductions, whether it's the Oxford studies, Stanford studies, uh, NHANE, you name it, um, you know, out of that 250 people who have increased their fruit and vegetable consumption three servings a day, probably 40 of them aren't going to need dialysis. So 100 grand saves $4 million. That gets people's attention That's in the policy message. arena. Yep. 
you know, and and it's um, so, you know, to Lindsay's point, it's message, but it's also the business case. You know, um, when we could prove that farmers put more land in production, that they made infrastructural investments in their businesses. And by the way, there's no more classic of an American small business. Um, when you start talking in those terms, everybody on both sides of the aisle start thinking in the terms of opportunity. And there, there actually is an implied return on investment that's backed by plenty of information out there that could actually help them be more open to these smaller pilots. But as, as we look to scale, yes, money is a barrier. I think the, one of the roads to policy is it comes in really starting to expand into larger corporate partnerships. What we've been doing, for instance, we did a fruit and vegetable prescription program pilot last year with Target in Los Angeles where they invested almost a million dollars in fruit and vegetable prescriptions for um, 560 pediatric patients and their family members. So we reached, you know, close to 2,700 Angelinos in places like Watts, Crenshaw, South Central. Um, And these, these prescriptions could be redeemed at six farmers markets or 20 Target stores. And an equal amount of prescriptions got redeemed at the sixes, got redeemed at the 20. And Target was still thrilled because they literally saw hundreds of customers that they knew had never been to a Target store. And this wasn't Target Foundation money. This was Target, the grocery store. It was was out of their marketing and uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility budget. And they were thrilled. You're uh, talking about prescriptions written by doctors. Exactly. Um, And How does that work? Well, the way it works is, you know, um, an at-risk patient sees a doctor. The doctor says you have... The, the doctor's part of your program? Yes. Okay. Uh, they're, they're a partner in it. Okay. So the doctor says you have all the comorbidities that tell me that you're pre-diabetic, you're hypertensive, you're trending on asthmatic, um, you're, you're headed towards a diet-related disease, whether it's type 2 diabetes, heart disease, a stroke, or all three which isn't uncommon, um, you know, when when you're looking at this type of um, lack of access to healthier food choices. So they fill out the prescription. Um, The patient and every member of household gets to participate. So it's a dollar per day per person, which equals about is the equivalent to two to three servings of fruits or vegetables a day. Um, And then, you know, they go to the retail point, exchange their their coupons for the fruits and vegetables, and they increase their consumption. And and uh, 48% of our index patients uh, reduce their BMI or body mass index in a 14-week intervention. And one of the sure signs that someone has changed their lifestyle and is heading in the right direction is a significant reduction in the body body mass index. So we're really, really thrilled about that because it's, it's getting a lot of people's attention. It's, it's awesome. So we're we're on that pathway to helping demonstrate um, that that you know a company, whether it's a retailer like Target, uh, whether it's a health insurance company that that is taking on these large portfolio, the ever growing portfolio of Medicare Medicaid patients, you know, being able to invest in reducing their cost of treatment in the back end is where their ROI comes from. Um, you know, so so we're trying to get the private sector more involved instead of going out and writing grants, which we're still doing, but actually get companies to say, this is worth investing our money in from a corporate social responsibility perspective, from a customer uh, loyalty perspective, a customer a- acquisition perspective. And it's just easier uh, to get people to change their lifestyle, less expensive to help them change their lifestyle by incentivizing that it is actually to pay for the stint, the dialysis, the, you know, all of the things that come at the back end if we aren't able to meaningfully reach these folks. If you do everything the doc says and you get those results, does the doc uh, prescribe a cupcake or a donut or anything that would be an incentive for me? Or doesn't work that way? We're talking, we're talking about incentives here. Michelle, did you see the news this morning? I saw the news this morning. No. One glass of beer, one glass of wine reduces your chance of early death. I don't know what they mean by early death. I don't know if they yeah. mean like 40, 50, or 60, but I, yeah, that, I, I that, that was good that, to say. Yeah, They've well, been that, saying that for a while. Yeah, we, yeah it, that goes back to what they call the French paradox, 
which at first seemed to be red wine, but it's actually turned out to be now it's all alcohol. But right. <laughs> you don't hear a lot about it because you know how Americans are. They say, oh, you should eat more soy, and then everybody pounds so much soy that they mm-hmm. actually get physical ailments more from eating better. too much soy. So it's kind of like, well, if two glasses of wine are great, <laughs> right. I yeah. must be in great shape if I drink a <laughs> bottle. So it's, it's one of those dangerous thinking. things to put out there. Yeah. You know? All so right. Well, just, we, we veered yeah. off message here, but uh, that's my fault. Uh, but we, we've probably got to wrap up because we've been talking almost an hour. I just want to ask each of you uh, what's next. Given uh, the success you've had, how, how are you going to build on it? How do we reach more people? <laughs> Tell us what websites people should uh should go to to learn more. Let's start with you, Lindsay. Well, um, just as of three days ago, I finished a pilot program with our retrofitted school bus turned licensed commercial kitchen. It is both a um, mobile kitchen to bring culinary education to um, children in high farm rate schools and their parents. And also it's a pop-up pantry to bring increased food access in pockets of the county in Montgomery County where we've got trailer parks or low-income apartment complexes where people are not able to come and get food assistance. Um, so this is a brand new program at MANA we're really excited about. It's a retrofitted about. school bus that drives around to, you know, like a like a bookmobile in the old days, right? Indeed. The libraries used to have. Yes, we were just at Gaithersburg Elementary last week, did an eight-day pilot program with the same kids for six, um, same, same 16 kids for eight days. Um, the kids had indicated on their pre-survey they had never heard of cauliflower. So I brought in purple and golden and white cauliflower and we roasted it with some flaky sea salt and some really nice olive oil and pepper and um, the kids all loved it so much parents were coming back on Friday saying they all had to go to the store to go get cauliflower and here were kids saying nice. it tasted like popcorn That's incredible and I mean it was a miracle before my own eyes right I mean so you can see really. this being replicated in other places a few places that we're seeing it around the country. Um, and so we're trying to follow some models and also build on some other curriculum things that's working. We're partnering with Common Threads right now. So you can go to manafood.org okay. or you can go to Mana Food Center on Facebook and see, you know, see pictures of our school bus in action. It's really an amazing project. It's a whole new program that we're starting to increase access and bring nutrition education out into the community, meeting people where they are. Yep. So, and and making it as accessible as possible. Exactly. Almost everybody can avail themselves of this. That's Scalable, right. do you think? In our community? Well, anywhere. Yeah, as long as someone's willing to get a bus driver's license and you know, right. put the put the work in. But it's we're seeing you know more um, retrofitted metro buses and school buses becoming mobile grocery stores out in Boston and New York. So this is something that's becoming more and more popular and really. You know, bringing food, increasing food access out into the community is really where we're able to get that fresh produce to, you know, needed yeah. needed families. Yeah. Michelle, what's next for you? More James Beard Awards, more restaurants, <laughs> more, more prescription <laughs> produce? Uh, where do you take uh, this next? One, yeah, Beard Awards, four is enough. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm no restaurants um, at the moment that I can think of. But I think for, for me, it's... Um, you know, the fruit and vegetable prescription program, I think, you know, has tremendous potential. So um, we're expanding our relationship with Target. Uh, not only will we be in Los Angeles again this year, we're going to be in Houston and Miami as well with an eye towards becoming a national uh, retail partnership, talking to a couple of very scaled health insurance companies right now who are very interested in the approach. And our, our thought is, you know, when you can get companies like this to put in non-philanthropic dollars uh, to help um, either their patients or community members and potential customers make a healthier lifestyle and you see a positive impact, that makes even a stronger case to preserve and to refine and improve uh, the way public dollars get spent in the context of helping people make healthier food choices. You know, when I when I, I look at the, the the it's in everybody's interest to prevent people from getting diabetes, heart disease, suffering a stroke, the lost productivity, all those things. Again, one point four trillion dollars a year. That's five percent of the national debt. If we can behave that way and over time eliminate that $1.4 trillion a year, 
by investing in food, which healthy food, which is much less expensive in the front end, um, that we actually stand the chance of eating our way out of the national debt. Wouldn't that be delicious? Oh. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, Deb, as a board member of uh, Wholesome Wave, and I guess you're one of uh, Michelle's bosses, um, any, any <laughs> if, 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 that, if such a thing is possible, uh, any aspirations for what Wholesome Wave does next? You know, I, I as I was saying earlier, I um, I was so enlightened, you know, Michelle, when I started to understand um, what you're what you've been talking about today, and I I feel like I've applied it into my own life. Um, you know, I've been losing weight all year. I've been eating more vegetables. Nice. I really believe in nice. this because, um, I, you know, when, when we know when it comes down to it, all you have is your health. And if it's so easy, right, to make it, um, at least for some of us, you know, and hopefully for everybody, but if it's so easy to be healthy, there's just no excuse not to do it. So I personally mm -hmm. have just feel, you know, really impacted by the work um, and hope I can just, you know, carry that message uh, all across the country. Yeah, looking forward to that. Well, thank so you all cool. for being here. Debbie, as always, great thank to you. have you on the show. Lindsay Seegers with MANA, really inspiring what you're doing. I really appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Michelle Nishan from Wholesome Wave. Uh, as I say, you're just, uh, you know, er every day I hear more about you, and I think what you're doing is something that uh, most Americans can relate to. I hope your support continues to grow and that uh, your voice continues to be heard because that's probably the most important thing. Uh, of all is that people understand that there is a message of hope and inspiration. We can eat our way out of some of our <laughs> problems, not just our national debt, but I've, I've heard you talk about, you know, kind of loving people through food, and I love that, oh, that yeah. concept. Mm -hmm. So oh, thanks for yes. being with us, Michelle. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. So good to hear everyone's voice. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.